Hi everybody, Luke here. Welcome to another podcast. This one's going to be solo and I'm going to talk today about training volume and some of the considerations that maybe people don't really think about when we are talking about training volume because of course it is a topic that is pretty hot right now in the fitness community and everyone kind of references how much training volume you should be doing, giving a number of sets that should be done and generally speaking about training volume as the primary driver of gains in hypertrophy and strength, which is sort of true, but I think people don't really understand the nuance that surrounds that, particularly when we're referring to how much training volume an individual should be doing. So this this topic could really go pretty deep and we could be sitting here for a long time talking about all the different nuances that go into determining how much training volume you should be doing as an individual and all the things that scientific research presently doesn't really address that well. But I'm not going to belabor the point too much. I think I'd just like to introduce some ideas and give some food for thought and hopefully what that will do is allow people to think about this topic a little more critically and to understand that, of course, research is very important, but there's some important limitations as well that we need to consider when we are talking about research. So to start off with, I'd like to just reference some of the limitations around sample sizes and how nutrition and training research is conducted. Obviously, training nutrition Uh, training research being the main thing that we're focusing on. So I actually did a a podcast on this that has a little bit more depth. It was one of the earliest ones I did. I think it might've even been the second or third one talking about statistics. And so if you're interested in this kind of thing, I do go a bit more in depth and explain it a bit better, but to just briefly touch on it, we can look for statistical significance in results. And you've probably heard that phrase before, statistical significance or whether a result was significant or not. And essentially what that is, is it's just a sort of analysis of the data that we have and how likely it is that we think that that result we got is actually applicable and actually true in the real world when we apply that to a broader population. So of course, what's happening when we do training research is we are recruiting a particular subject pool. We are then performing some kind of training protocol and we're measuring a few different outcomes. And those outcomes might be strength gains or muscle thickness or something like that. And then we're trying to understand whether these results came about just out of pure chance or whether it's likely that these results actually occurred due to the protocols we were using and therefore actually have some applicability for us. Now, there are two types of statistical errors that you can get when you do this kind of analysis. The first one is what we call a false positive or a type one error. And this is akin to having a pregnancy test done and the pregnancy test telling you that you're you're pregnant when in fact you're actually not pregnant. Now, that can happen for sure, but I'm going to kind of ignore that one a little bit. I want to talk a little bit more about the type two errors, and these are called false negatives. So this would be akin to a situation where you've done a pregnancy test, you're definitely pregnant, but the pregnancy test tells you that you're not pregnant. Now, people don't often talk about type two errors that much, but they're actually a really, really big part of training and nutrition research in general, because it's directly linked to the statistical power of our study. 
Now, statistical power is increased when we have more subjects, when we have a longer duration study, when we have more sophisticated equipment or the ability to measure things with more granularity, all of those sort of things can increase the statistical power of our studies. And typically in training research, we find that the statistical power is actually not great. It's, it's pretty low in most cases. And the reason why is because it is logistically really, really difficult to run a study. To recruit people is firstly really challenging because you've got to basically take people out of the population. You've got to ensure that they're following your protocol properly. You've got to change around their training. I mean, imagine if someone just approached you and said, hey, how would you like to be in my study? I'm gonna take control of your training for the next 12 weeks. And there's a chance that you're actually gonna be put into the group where we're gonna use a training protocol that we don't think is gonna produce as good results as another one. And you can't do any other training and we've got to try and control all the stuff. And also you've got to come into the lab multiple times to take measurements and we can't really give you anything in return. We can't really pay you or anything. Maybe we can give you 50 bucks or something like that. That's kind of where we're at with it. So most people are not going to be participating in that. And if they are, it's likely that they're going to come from a population that is maybe not applicable to everybody, right? It's going to be maybe college students who have to do this type of thing for extra credit or something along those lines. So that's the first issue is that it's difficult to recruit a lot of people. The second issue is then just trying to pay for it all. Like you've got to pay the researchers, you've got to pay for the lab equipment, you've got to get people in and do the research. So for example, if you're testing everybody on a DEXA scan, you've got to pay for each of your subjects to have multiple DEXA scans. And that means that you could be, let's say you have a subject pool of like 40 people, which is actually quite a lot for, for some studies, uh, sadly. You know, you're then performing maybe something at the start of the study and something at the end of the study. And so now you've just had to pay for 80 DEXA scans, which is pretty significant, right? So there's this issue of funding, there's this issue of logistics, of, of organizing everything and all that sort of stuff. And it's just an inherent issue when we're doing this kind of research. So that's kind of the main problem that I wanted to get out of the way first is that a lot of research is definitely gonna give us a great insight, but it has some limitations in terms of its statistical significance, which just means that the likelihood of us getting a result that maybe isn't reflective of what's actually happening is a little bit higher than what a lot of people really realize. Now, that doesn't mean we don't want to listen to research at all. In fact, we, we want to be guided by research because that's really the only sort of process we have to get to the truth. But we also have to remember that when we're trying to apply research to individuals, there's a big caveat, and that is that the research is firstly incomplete, and secondly, it works on averages. So you often see these recommendations of how many working sets you should do per week as your weekly training volume for muscle growth. And typically the recommendation is somewhere between 10 and 20 working sets per week per muscle group. And this is certainly a recommendation that I've made quite a lot myself, but think about how big that, that range is. It's, it's a massive, massive difference. And so in this situation, as an individual, how do you know if you should be doing 10 sets per muscle group per week or 20 sets per muscle group per week? Uh, it's, it's a really difficult thing and there's no way for us to necessarily determine that with any real accuracy or, or anything that's quick and easy. It really is gonna just take a lot of experimentation. 
But the issue with that, of course, is then that there's a ton of different variables that are gonna affect how much training volume you can do. So let's think about what's gonna affect how much training volume you can actually do in the first place. The, I mean, the general idea is really that we're just trying to do as much volume as we can physically recover from on a consistent basis because the more work we do and the more we can recover from it essentially that's just a greater stimulus to the muscle that means we can continue to improve now a lot of stuff is going to affect our recoverability which is going to affect how much training volume we can realistically manage and that stuff comes down to stress management sleep nutrition so on and so forth unfortunately all of these factors as much as you might try to control them still have some inherent variability because we are of course a complex biological organism and we happen to be pretty pretty complex and with a lot of variables interacting with each other you know so for example there are some things that you certainly can control but occasionally you might just get a poor night's sleep for reasons that you don't know or you might have a particularly stressful day at work and that might impact your recovery and reduce the number of sets that you can realistically recover from but there's no real way of you knowing how to measure that there's no formula we can use where you go oh well i received three extra units of stress above my baseline today therefore i need to reduce my training volume by one set this week it just doesn't work that way right so a lot of this comes down to sort of intuition and a lot of the time the the results that we follow i mean of course we want to keep data so that we can understand what's happening but a lot of the time what's happening is you're not going to really recognize if you've overtrained or under recovered or whatever until like a week later or two weeks later when your results have sort of come in and you're like oh shit i, I think i was doing too much the last couple of weeks but and because i haven't progressed and I'm feeling really run down now. And so this is this lagging indicator. So there's a few different issues here when we're talking about training volume, of course, on a more macro level. But some of the things that I think people don't really look at are some of the more granular level things. So, for example, we always talk about this sort of 10 to 20 working sets per week, you know, as a general recommendation. And the issue with that is that there's a lot of stuff that's going to affect how stimulative a set is. Are we talking about standardizing for range of motion or how damaging an exercise is to muscle tissue or how experienced you are as a trainee or how much rest you're having in between or how much force you're producing or the tempo at which you're lifting? You can start to see that the variables just start to bloat out this recommendation so much and there's so much to consider. You know, typically in the research, if we consider 10 sets per week on your chest, are we talking, we're not standardizing that for exercises that may overload the stretched position of the pec and cause a bit more muscle damage as a result. We're not able to, yet, we're not able to understand the difference between, say, maybe doing a, a partial range of motion versus a full range of motion and understand exactly how that's going to manipulate the volume prescription for the average person or, or certainly not for an individual. So with that in mind, I think it does take a little bit more nuance and a little bit more thinking outside the box to understand how much training volume should I realistically be doing and understanding that that's not a fixed number. It's a floating target based on all of the factors I've mentioned already. So to give a, a real quick example, if I'm selecting exercises that prioritize a really large range of motion, I'm performing them 
with an implement, for example, that might uh, stress the muscle a little bit more over the entire range as opposed to only through a partial range of motion. If I am then not sleeping that well, or maybe I have a little bit of extra stress, or maybe my nutrient timing's a little bit off or whatever, it could very well be that the amount of stimulative working sets I can realistically recover and uh, progress from in each week might only be something like eight sets per week. Whereas I could take the next training phase where I'm selecting exercises that maybe don't challenge the muscle as much through the full range, where my stress levels are a little lower, and I might be able to tolerate 10 or 12 sets a week. There's really no way of knowing for sure, but you do have to try and consider all of these factors when you're working it out. And again, referring back to the research is a really good place to start. I do think that 10 to 20 working sets per week per body part is a reasonable recommendation for most people. But you have to understand that this is a really, really incomplete picture. And you have to understand that 10 sets per week versus 20 sets per week is an incredibly large difference. And that's such a broad range. So we have to be careful when we're thinking about how much training volume to do. And uh, I suppose I'd really like to leave you with some practical recommendations at the end of this. For me, I really do like to start more towards the bottom end of the bracket. And the reason why is because it guarantees that the sets I do are of high quality. I'm more likely to put in the amount of effort that is gonna be truly stimulative into a session if I know that I only have to do four or five sets on a body part versus 10 sets and then I got another 10 sets later on in the week or something like that. It also means that if you get that sort of minimum dose in there and you find that it's not really stimulative enough for you to progress fast enough, you can always put the volume up. Whereas if you start too hard and you induce a lot of fatigue, you have to wait for that fatigue to dissipate before you can start building up again. And it may mean that you completely overshoot what your optimal amount of volume is from the get-go. And then you've got to try and find where that is again later. Whereas if you started on the lower end at say 10 sets per week on a body part, you can always take it to 11 sets. Okay, cool. I'm still feeling good. And maybe I'm not making as much progress as I want, but I'm still making a bit of progress. Uh, And then I could add another set and then I could add another set. And that way over time, you can kind of feel out where a good amount of training volume for you is on average and work with it that way. You know, there's, there's sort of always this danger of like, if you do too much, then it's very hard to figure out where to go from there. Whereas if you sort of do too little, well, Worst case scenario, you're going to at least maintain what you've got and you're probably still going to make a little bit of progress. It just won't be quite as fast as you'd like. And then you can just add another set or two on top of that and see where you go from there. So anyway, just a a quick one to kind of talk through some of the things. This has been completely off the top of my head into the microphone. So I hope it all kind of made sense and had a bit of reasonable structure to it that you could follow. But let me know your thoughts. Hopefully it was useful and provided some food for thought in your own training. And I'm looking forward to more research in the future that goes a little bit more into some of these details and explores them a bit better in the future. Thanks for listening. Again, if you enjoyed, please give us a a share, a rate, whatever. Really appreciate it. And I'll catch you in the next episode.